this kilobytes because that's got to no not feet. No, I like your um, inordinately long intros on your podcast, Hal. I know they're always fiddling around, but it's better than like a, a introduction saying, today I'm going to be talking to James Oster. And like, I prefer the kind of casual reality of, what if I just, if you're listening to this, you should go on YouTube and watch the video because James has dressed us, me uh, in a 1970s tux that used to belong to my father valentino and you in this fabulous robe because it was such a casual start to the podcast that we both spent the last hour discussing what we'd wear um yeah and and i james has imposed all sorts of rules on he's told me what i have to wear he's told me how we can't uh stop the podcast without you uh approving it no i said that we both have to mutually agree when it ends yeah I think that's, that's fair. That's like consensual ending. Consensual happy ending. Yeah, it's true that... Um, um, hold on, I'm just going to try and get more comfortable. Let here. me just check the tape, because Tal's worry was that he wouldn't look good with his shirt off sitting down. I personally think he looks absolutely divine. Even in the video? Dude. You look... How old are you? I'm 46. I mean, look at that shit. He looks like a fucking Roman god. Okay, we're off to a good start here. Just trying to make you feel good at the beginning. James is one of the, my favorite um, conversationalists in addition to being a brilliant artist because most people, after a few minutes of talking to them, um, Chris Ryan said this in the podcast he did with my mom the other day. He, he, he had a kind of backhanded compliment. He said, the great thing about Tao is that if he's just you know, bored with a conversation, he'll just walk away. Um, and go play the piano in the middle of a sentence. And I thought that sounded terribly rude and I felt ashamed when I heard it. But I also was thinking yesterday that you're one of the few people I can just talk, listen to talk for hours and I don't get restless. And I think that um, you've mastered not only the visual arts that you um, engage with, but the art of conversation. And so I'm excited about this talk. I, I was hoping that we can try and set some kind of record and make it the longest podcast I've done. I always admire these podcasters who can go three, four hours. Um, so I think buckle up and uh, I think uh, I, I, I have high hopes for this conversation without building up too much pressure. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. I'm not sure... When have I ever held your attention? Like, if you've got a reference to that other than last night, when would that be? I don't know. I don't have a good memory. I just know that when I'm listening to you, I don't feel restless and I don't, I'm don't. i curious about what you're going to say next because a lot of people, you can kind of predict the next sentence. And with you, I, I, I don't know what's going to come out next. And that's really delightful. Do um, you... Go ahead. No, go on. What were you going to say? No, I mean, I was wondering if you see conversation as an art form. I think... I think... I think I'm just ready to get relaxed, actually. I'm just going to have a sip of this delightful coffee you and Tracy made between the two of you. Hang on, sorry. There was... um. So just while you sip, I'll give a little background of uh, James. Do I want to do that? Maybe that's too expository. But um, I do remember at the Biennale a couple of years ago or three years ago, there was some technical issue 
um, at the Opera House, which James had designed. And I want to talk about that and the whole vision of the Opera House in Bombay Beach. But there was some sound issue and James just had to just like volunteer to stand up and talk to the audience for it was a good hour of you just off the cuff keeping everybody very entertained and people were wondering if you were a professional uh, stand-up comedian or uh, commentator that was wild that, that was actually one of the more thrilling experiences i've had for, me too as a creative process because it was kind of I, I can't remember like there's something maybe there was some technical issue wasn't mm-hmm. there do, do i need to take these glasses off so i can see you a bit better like what's it's that singer a stevie wonder is it all a bit stevie wonder with the mono or not I, I i it's up to you i think it really i think most people just listen to this so you can wear or not wear the glasses. Just I mean, the thing is, I uh, definitely probably what you and I have in common is, well, I don't know whether we have this in common. I don't really care what people think. It was more like, I like I, we don't eyes. need an audience. It's more our engagement with yeah. each other. Yeah, I know it's good to see That's your eyes. Fine. Although it's kind of creepy the way you're looking at me, but it's okay. <laughs> I've been told that before. Like, uh, in fact, a handful of girlfriends who I've spent enough time with in kind of public have got to the point where they say do do you mind not looking at people like that oh not even them they're asking you not to look at other people oh yeah they've never said it from me to them because i guess if they've evolved to becoming in the position where i've described them as my girlfriend to you then they've obviously find whatever i present agreeable in behavioral terms but yeah no it's i i i didn't really do it consciously but i do really stare at people yeah, I noticed the first several times I met you that you were you were asking lots of questions, um, almost bordering on, you know, prying. It's the same as your look, is your questions. And, you know, the first concern is like, why do you want to know all these things? But then I think it's just genuine curiosity about the world and about people. And I think that's one of the things that makes you so charming is that you're actually interested in not just hearing the sound of your own voice, which is why a lot of people talk, but you're actually um, asking probing questions, often questions that other people wouldn't dare ask, but that everyone's wondering about. Yeah, uh, I find it... I mean, yeah, I, I think that's a fair observation of the way I am. And it's something that definitely I really enjoy. And I think the older I get, the more I'm beginning to realize the levels of Machiavellianism to people. And and so, you know, the very fact that, you know, it's a, a fair and natural observation for you to say, you know, first of all, I was like, why is he asking these questions? You know, and that sort of very kind of, basic statement where people say what well, knowledge is power or something like that and it's like what why why would someone want to know levels of intimacy about you without them them being able to harbor that and use it against you at some point or but I, i've never had that reasoning behind why i'm curious to know you know whether you were fucking molested when you were five it, it's more like I want to understand who you are and how we're engaging and, you know, to a degree, how I can empathize with 
your behavior one way or another, whatever that is, I guess. Or just passing the fucking time. And and because I was talking with Dulcinea yesterday about like who has the longest podcast and she looked it up for me and it was like 36 hours and she's like, of course it's two, you know, dudes, two white dudes talking to each other. Who else would do that? And it is interesting that this this podcasting phenomenon like everything that we're probably going to end up talking about, there is like, it's kind of a double-edged sword that you can interpret one of two ways. There's like a kind of cynical view of like, you know, someone said uh, that they heard that Joe Rogan can autofillate and someone tweeted that, that he can like suck his own cock and, 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 and someone tweeted underneath, isn't that what podcasting is? Yeah. And um, so there is something a little bit, um, uh, masturbatory to it but I also think there's this it's kind of a, a respite from all of the ADD quick um, you know way we consume whether it's you know Instagram stories that are you know these like 10 second things and then for some reason people are willing to sit down and listen to people talk for hours and they prefer it to be unedited and I've sat down I personally suffer from pretty bad ADD and somehow I can listen to a four-hour conversation between people and I think that it's in a way harking back to like pre you know for much of human history, people just talk to each other um, before the advent of writing. And now we kind of privilege writing as a, this a superior like mode of communication. But I think that this has brought back this oral tradition of learning from each other through speech and uh, learning from each other you know, through conversation and dialogue and dialectic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, I guess it's like the, the kind of basic of campfireism isn't it or like you know the people i mean it depends who's doing the orating i mean i don't know what the statistics are around how many white males are podcasting over those that aren't i mean obviously you refer to joe rogan he has the largest following on planet earth in terms of a podcast uh you know people recognize him now as a uh, transphobic individual apparently or not uh so he represents sort of alpha male white kind of toxic masculinity as it's framed in terms of public discussion right um from the left uh i mean i started listening to him years ago uh when he first started and i'd just broken up with someone who is a recognized public feminist an activist and you know in fact you and I discussed last night very briefly the fact that at one point in our lives we both dated extremely powerful successful women and you know you said in the end you become a purse carrier right and that is interesting Hang on, I've lost track because I just saw you wince slightly. Because no, no, I'm not wincing. I'm, I'm fine. I'm just, um, no, I'm just thinking. And, it, it, you know, it's like I, the inversion of to what, how I was feeling at that point in terms of demasculation, hearing a podcaster talking about hunting, fishing, shooting, sport, his levels of testosterone, how he relates to exercise, being a man in inverted commas, really appealed to me at that point. Uh, it, I'm not a transphobic. I've got 
you know some sort of you know many gay people in my family i worked in ballet for 10 years like i i i we could talk for hours of my definition or interpretation of masculine and feminine and whatever thing else in between but at that moment i was like yeah i want to hear a guy talking about shooting things while i'm making art and i started doing more physical activity i dropped weight started to feel good about myself it certainly didn't change how i related to women and then but his evolution and the more attention he attracted i actually think he's probably like everyone eventually does become addicted to fame and wealth and power and i honestly think from the numbers of episodes i listened to him at the beginning of his career to then the arc of how it moved into definitely transphobia definitely you know all of the things that are written in the left-wing media about him i agree with and to the point that when i'm driving around in my car now and when i go on spotify it shows that i've listened to joe rogan i'm like i wish i could fucking delete that so this person sitting next to me doesn't think i'm some weird right-wing psychopath because mm -hmm. i occasionally dip in but you can't delete it in your spotify history right and you know because he does speak to some of the most brilliant scientists in the world and he speaks to the some of the most brilliant nutritionalists, you know, female nutritionists who, and there's no veering or steering towards any kind of uh, 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 ta toxic masculinity and all these things. And we're, I think we're at a really complicated and difficult time. You know, we're, we're at a point of extremity, which in the history of humanity always pops up and then all blows up. They chop the heads off everyone in France and start again because the rich is getting too rich or the power is becoming too powerful. And we're, we're definitely at this. Do you mind me rambling on? Please. I've got a lot to say on this subject, no, I, I, actually. No, I'm, 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 I'm here for it. Um, I kind of find it fun that we're at the starting point of talking about Joe Rogan and two white guys talking to each other on a well, podcast, but that's what it's about. I think we have to acknowledge that. For fucking sure. And I've thought about this a lot in the last... You know, as an artist, which is what you know me as, I said to a friend of mine 15 years ago, I haven't been a full-time artist my whole life. It's impossible to be a full-time artist unless you fucking have read about them in the paper or they've got a massive trust fund. And the, the, the reality is, as I said to him, I was in Basel in Switzerland, which is, you know, the heartbeat of the art world, if people don't know that. And I just decided I want to become an artist. I'd, I'd had a near-death experience on stage with a big piece of scenery fell on my head. And I thought, fuck this. And it's probably longer than 15 years ago now. And uh, my community of people suddenly were becoming multi-millionaires overnight through art, the urban art world. And it was like printing money. It was utterly insane. And I thought, I'm going to become a fucking artist. But for three months. You, you were going to become an artist for three months. Yeah. I was I like, thought you could make money like this? Uh, well, no, I, I had 10 grand savings. Uh -huh. And I thought that, and I rented the biggest studio I could in Labrick Grove, 2,000 square feet. How old were you? <laughs> oh, I mean, I gave up smoking when I was 29, and it was way before that. I'm 43 now. So it's obviously more than 15 years ago. It's probably 18 years ago. So you were in your mid-20s? Yeah. And you hadn't thought about making art before that? Well, I was, a, I was a scenic painter for the English National Ballet for a number of years. 
but that you know you're you're working under someone else's creative process you're delivering you know someone else's vision and yeah i just i, I you know my, I, my childhood i was you know my father took me to francis bacon shows in paris when i was like eight years old you know i came from a place of privilege as a child so i was exposed to art you know through my father uh his best friend was a sculptor an englishman in paris and so you know, I'd just been, it'd been fed into me from an early age. Um, I veered off in terms of concentration because I was just thinking about that show. It was like remarkable to see that at that age. I think that, you know, the tension that we're like hinting at is, we talked about this a bit last night. It's, it's something that's very baked into the art, the, the concept of making art in general. Because on the one hand, you're, there's this profound, desire and hopefully success at kind of uh manifesting what it means to be human at a particular time and as a very the, the artist has this profound calling in terms of what is left from thousands of years ago how what is our window into what it was was to be an you know ancient egyptian or any time in human history what stays and what is what is the most accurate representation of what it was to be human more than the wars and the politics and the, is the art that was created at that time. So there's this um, lofty ideal and reality of what art is. And then at the same time, it's a, com a commodity and it's a reflection of the worst of our times, especially I think of capitalism and, and inequality and of commodification of everything and so i think as an artist you're kind of having a dialogue and also just doing bombay beach uh i think we're we're engaging with this uncomfortable tension uh between this uh, ideal lofty ideal and these more base kind of realities both societal and individual i think i now remember what i was talking about so, in, you know, I, I can understand, you know, our commonality is Bombay Beach, Biennale, and I'm sure eventually we'll get around to that. Yeah. The In the previous thing I said, I was talking about Switzerland and Art Basel. Mm -hmm. So I was there, I think we worked out around 18 years ago, something like that, with my friend who's the director of one of the most highly recognized uh, galleries in London. And I sat across the table from her and I said, I've decided I'm going to become an artist. This is what I'm going to do. And uh, I said, but I'm not sure if I should do it because I'm not black. And we had a huge argument. She reacted very profoundly to that statement. She's a white woman from an uh, upper middle class background. And she's like, I mean, I guess she, she, we were good enough friends that she understands me as being a self-saboteur. Mm -hmm. as well so that would be the baseline right mm -hmm. but the reality is is i'm also someone who understands commercialism and you know to a degree i think people who are successful artists or in whatever capacity they're they're futurologists in terms of their thinking because you're making you know it takes two years to make a fucking show right a good one probably or it could take maybe 20 minutes but the point is you you've got to engage people's thinking in that moment in a way that they weren't yet or it was it's part of where the tide is shifting towards so you 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 can effectively see forward 
And perhaps that isn't because you're so brilliantly intelligent. Perhaps it's because you've designed your life in such a way that you have the time to think, which is what you have out here in Joshua Tree, right? Uh, you know, obviously you have a medley of things you have to do running your businesses and your behaviors, but you probably have more time than if you were a hedge funder working in New York right now with three fucking kids and a wife who needs 30 grand a month, otherwise she's going to stop touching your penis, <laughs> right? So, so in my statement to Lindsay about saying, you know, maybe I shouldn't bother on this journey as an artist because I'm not black, and the, the consequent conversation we had, which neither of us agreed on, well, 15 years later... I would definitely be making significantly more money and be able to market myself in a far more efficient way if I have my level of privilege and entitlement but was also black. I, I mean, it would be fucking easy. I'd be the Damien Hurst of black male artists right now. I would know how to pull that shit off very easily. Uh, Go on. I'm, I'm curious why you think this is the case and how you could divorce your blackness or whiteness from the rest it seems like there's such a it's such a loaded um you know experience and and reality for somebody to have you know like you can't just change the color of your skin and say all, all else equal no what i'm saying is is like there's fucking nothing left for the white male to say of interest to me like i made a show about it five six years ago i mean the work you in the, the, the autofillating back to that idea of of you think that there's nothing left for, for just a, a, a white man expressing himself is just boring intrinsically it is for me yeah right so primarily i'm my own audience to my life experience uh-huh so it's like you know that's my starting point of relevance but what I was saying was I was trying to block my chin no, no, it's, it's I mean, to, you to see you <laughs> go on I mean we're going to need more than an hour to discuss just this one point yeah but we have plenty of time the 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 and it's also like you know, whether it's the coffee kicking in or just the fact that I'm having a general malaise of anxiety based on the fact that we're discussing being white men because like you said that kind of is like we're doubling down on how fucking irritating we could come across right now to people who aren't you just simply you and i right so we've actually got to unthread this conversation or we should just delete it yeah right so i think we i think you and i are intelligent enough to do the first version yeah even if it's the only thing we discuss right now, yeah. because that will ultimately parlay into how we relate moving forward in our lives. And that will be whether we make it all about us or we make it about other people. And that's about how you behave in terms of your own dick or in terms of how you create art shows or biennales. Go on. So I was told like six, seven years ago, well, six years ago by a mutual artist friend of ours who, you know, he, he really loved me and he wanted to help me. And he had an introduction for me to have a show in New York with some very brilliant curators. 
And I came back to him with this concept of a show which related to the amount of to a, uh, the amount of time I'd at that point spent in Lagos, Nigeria. It's like way too long a story to go in now. It's like, go have a look at the website, www.jamesostra.com. But the, the nuts and bolts of it was that I was having a show saying, discussing my fear of sub-Saharan African people, right? Because I felt like, as a white male artist, that was the last show I should ever have. There's no point having any other conversation after that. And I was like, I'm ready to retire after this show. Uh, because, and the reason I want to have this show is, is like, my inbuilt experience and perspective of sub-Saharan Africans is basically off. The, I've never been to Africa at that point before having gone out to Lagos, Nigeria, invited by um, uh, someone called Azu Nagbogu, who runs the African Art Foundation. He's a brilliant fucking guy. My response, you know, I've traveled extensively around the world. I'm like, why have I avoided Africa? Like, and it was fear-based. And that fear basis, uh, basis was like, you know, 25 years ago and less and more further back time, like as an English person, the way you relate to Africa is through charity videos of like kid, flies going around small kids' heads or 12-year-olds holding AK-47s or poverty and starvation. That was the branding of Africa. That was a deliberate branding from a, a global perspective for us to dominate that place in order to extract their raw minerals, right? You need us, we're going to throw the odd carrot at you whilst we're fucking excavating all this shit out of there, right? And keeping you unempowered alongside those leaders. And so, you know, at the time, like seven years ago, it's like, oh, the problems with the world is the white male. And you speak to an African guy as intelligent and smart as Azu, he goes, what are you talking about? He's like, fucking, have you not heard of African dictators who are black and male? They're not white. And he kind of laughed and he's like, mind you, they probably got some influence from, you know, the white male at some point, you know, colonialism and whatever the fuck. I don't know enough about the history of this and you for sure speak to way smarter people than I do, you know, about the history of humanity. Uh, so I'm bouncing around here and I appreciate you forgiving me and not interjecting yet because I'm just trying to get it channeled. And... So I said to this guy who was trying to get me into the show in New York, I said, yeah, this, this, I'm going to work with Azu. He's this amazing curator. And it's going to be about my fear of black people, basically. I mean, in summary. And he was like, are you fucking insane? You're in New York? You know, the, the heartbeat of fear around liberalism and fuck against the right-wing perspective and everything else. And I was like, well, yeah. He's like, you're going to completely destroy your career. It's over for you, my friend. And I, that, and I was just like, well, good. <laughs> because if, if the white male can't talk about the problems of the white male, then how the fuck are we going to change it? Yeah. So what happened? Did you do it? Yeah. And the installation of 
has transcended its way and appeared and manifested as the opera house. I mean, the body of that work is on the back of that. No one's read the actual intellectual property around the opera house. By the, so, so the opera house in Bombay Beach um, is made of... My first interaction with James was seeing 20 huge black garbage bags with shipping labels from Nigeria. And out of these bags were poking out these old, like, um, kind of weather-worn flip-flops. Thousands and thousands of them shipped from from Nigeria. And before I'd met you, I somehow stumbled on these packages that had been delivered. I think they, they, they pre-arrived you. Yeah, they arrived at Sonia's house. Yeah. So I was like, what's this? And then it turns out that your idea was to kind of wallpaper the interior of the opera house. First of all, the opera house, um, Maria Kochakova, who was an amazing ballerina at the time, was the uh, the premier ballerina of the, of the San Francisco Ballet. Stefan had asked her to come and dance at the opera house. I mean, all of these issues of colonialism and Western culture, and you know, we, we're confronting them very head-on in our interaction in this Bombay beach, which, you know, it's the most third world place in the United States, I think, that I've encountered. Maybe some parts of the South have a similar kind of um, just sense of having been forgotten, disposed, uh, with just zero concern for the the, the environment, the people. The, I mean, Bombay Beach is uh, when we first came to it was the, as catastrophic of a place as you could find in this country in terms of ec economics and environment and mismanagement and everything that everything that can go wrong when you know white people arrive in a place and have zero regard for both the indigenous. Uh, you know, culture and environment of a place, uh, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. That's why, like, like in a way, Bombay Beach is like a, it's like a warning of what could go, what could happen in the whole world, from the the heat to the poverty to the, uh, you know, just mismanagement in every way. And I think as artists coming in and confronting this, and you know, I think we're going to talk a lot, a lot about this. But there's this kind of need to uh face whether it's going to be sometimes lightheartedly sometimes humorously sometimes in a heavier way but we're going to, we're facing this idea of of privilege and ability to interact in a certain way with an environment that has has been uh just mismanaged in every way possible, right? I, I like to compare it to to uh, Palm Springs. We have, you know, Modernism Week, where it's just this very optimistic, earnest kind of celebration of modernist aesthetics and architecture. And you've got the uh, white picket fences and the beautiful 1950s houses. And, and then you just drive an hour away and you see the other side of that coin and what happens when, like, this sort of, like, optimism turns into uh, um, 
uh, arrogance instead of optimism. I think when like people thought like, oh, there's this accidental sea that's been made and we can turn it into a uh, a place for boating and fishing and tourism and you know what could possibly go wrong, everything went wrong. So now these artists show up and you know decide to bring opera and ballet, which is you know on the one hand the one some of the greatest things that human beings have ever created, and on the other hand, just the epitome of you know. Uh, disconnected uh privileged art form and it's you know it's almost like a caricature of elitism opera right yeah. but the idea of juxtaposing it on this environment there's a freshness to it and there was a fascination with like confronting this juxtaposition right um and so when the idea came that stefan brought to to build an opera house in this godforsaken place there's an irreverence, there's a humor, but there's also a, a jarring acknowledgement, I think, of, uh, of, of something not being quite right, quite aligned. And so then he invited Maria to dance, and she said, I will only dance there if James is the artist who makes the opera house. And now you arrive with these flip-flops from, from Africa, and I'd love for you to talk about the concept behind that. Um, why? Why did you cover the place with flip-flops? For those well, of us who haven't read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm kind of scared about the amount of white male pepperisming in we're getting in this conversation because I don't, I think it's like the beginning of what you just said is slightly muddy to me. You know, like I, I, I wasn't, following exactly what you were saying and that's no critique on your ability to explain yourself but it's probably more about my hypersensitivity to that general dialogue right it, it, it you know it's no like, it's murky waters and i i'm not i i'm i don't claim to have s exposed anything as clearly as i would have liked yeah i'm just trying to allude to the some of the issues that were that 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 we're contending with by engaging in this fraught environment yeah and that we are hoping i hope in this conversation and in the work that we're doing mm. that we're acknowledging the tension and having a dialogue with it in yeah. the same way that you said that you know it, we ha we have to right i mean there's two options we can just shut up which is there's a lot to be said for that too and not make anything like you said maybe you, as a white man you shouldn't be an artist maybe we shouldn't be having this podcast um but here we are and we have an we have an impulse to create and to talk and so let's at least be honest and like grapple with the difficult issues right yeah i think i mean the simplest way of without like, patting myself on the ourselves on the back yeah i mean this this the yeah i mean ultimately me making a show about my fear of sub-saharan african people was based on me intellectualizing and having put a deep amount of thinking into what could be the consequent value of doing that, right? And your question you asked earlier was, well, what was the result? Well, the result was over many thousands of people coming through that installation, you know, just on Times Square, and me having probably 50 interactions a day with people who it got to the point like day two day three like initially when people say oh what's your show about you're like bubba dee bubba dee boom 
boobity boom 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 when I was in Africa and this and that. And all oh, my friend Azu, you know, he's African, so that's why I can have this conversation. It's okay. And then it was like, it got like day three. It's like, oh, I'm speaking to so many people. They go, what's this show about? I'm like, oh, it's my favorite black people. Uh, you know, like fucking four words. And I mean, you've been to New York. There's a multitude of different types of people, especially those who are going to like a liberal based art show you know, community-wise. And people talk to me about what their fears were. And the most interesting conversations I had were speaking to Nigerian people who were like, yeah, fuck that. I'm never going to go and visit my grandma. You fucking kidding me? It's scary there. You know, so it's like, I think ultimately, uh, so much of obviously the world's problems are fear-driven, right? So wh why, why am I, you know, uh, scared why am I scared of you why am I why am I not sitting with my shirt open showing my fat stomach opposite you who clearly eats less than me you know so that like so, oh fear driven oh no I feel great in my colorful dressing gown right so it's like but in the same way as like you know why people start wars with the next door tribal village it's oh because I want to fuck as many of their women as possible and steal their property right uh, and that is how Coca-Cola relates to planet Earth or whatever, poisoning the rivers in India and not caring for profits for CEOs and shareholders who live in Montecito next door to fucking Meghan and Harry now. And it's like, you know, in, in, in the end, for me, being an artist and evolving my thinking is about understanding how I can create the least amount of tension and anger, resentment, stress in my life. And, there, and then... You know, I brought that right back to the micro during the pandemic and just literally only spent time with my aunt, dad and my sister for two years. Haven't made a piece of art whatsoever. Because I'm like, I've spent the last 15 years talking about myself and global politics and, you know, how I relate to all of that shit whilst neglecting my own family. So it's like, oh, I can become an authority on the dysfunction of the world and everything else whilst not looking at what's going on on my own doorstep or even in my own head. And so I'm, I bounced off the subject to Bombay, but then it's about like, once you understand what your own ethical perspective is and the kind of people you want to hang around with and how you want to relate to the earth, then if you're lucky enough, which I am, you can decide who you want to work with and how you want to present that work and what environments or and also, you know, as a 43-year-old or two-year-old who's just been through a pandemic, I'm also like, oh, fuck, I'm of an age where I have a certain amount of energy resource. Where do I want to invest that with the, 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 the greater results of what, how I relate to the world in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of need, right? When you get to the top of that, you've got enough money, you've got enough success, you've got enough self-validation you've put a roof over your head you've got enough water and food if you're not a fucking insane sociopath narcissist you start thinking about other people and what you, you know and there's people who start way you know like nurses teachers fucking good people they they're already there and and they're servicing their basic needs on very fucking low wages whilst at the same time helping other people and then you have this whole other group of people who are like find themselves as artists poets and whatever the fuck we are and all the people we know and you you go well why are they doing that right and then you get to the point where bombay starts 
for us like this is a conversation that can relate to whoever might be listening to this podcast and it's like well i invert the question back to you why why did you and two other people start it the biennale um well i you know i think obviously there's a million ways to frame this story and just go for the more, honest one yeah but i i don't know if it if it it if there exists, uh, you know, facts without interpretation, and both the, the way they're interpreted during and and post post hoc, but I I do think there was a very earnest um, desire to engage with the place that I think really was both inspiring and in need of some. Engagement. I think that there was like uh, there was the possibility of doing something meaningful and and profound that presented itself with a, a kind of visceral falling in love with this place that m most people would just peer at and then run away. Speaking of fear, like I think nobody spent the night in Bombay Beach when I started going there because they were afraid. They th when I would talk to people, they said like it was dangerous after dark there, um, and there was no place you could stay. So people would come and kind of engage in this, uh, you know, ruin porn uh, viewing of these, like the, the, the kind of uh, maybe kind of just just being fascinated by the state of disrepair and then take some pictures and make some music videos because it was just weird and interesting. And then I just start, kept going back and thinking that some of the some of the creativity that this place was inspiring should stay there and be used to kind of um, nurture the place. And like, you know, you know, if you look at the area around Bombay beach, it's desert, but when you add water to it, it becomes very fertile, right? They have, you have, if you look at Google maps um, at the area above North and South of the Sultan sea, it's rich with green and with, and, and I think half the produce of the entire country is grown in that little Imperial Valley. So my sense was that um, you could take that as a metaphor and have the same thing with art. Like I, when it comes to like, if you add water to the soil, you get all this growth of produce. And if you add artists and creative people to this kind of the you know forgotten place we might have a similar flourishing and um and it happened it happened w way beyond my wildest dreams i think that people have shown up there and they've been uh they've been uh sowing this soil culturally uh with by engaging with it in a creative way and i think that you know that's that's the super optimistic which I believe in, though, uh, interpretation of what's what's going on there. I think people are coming and and are inspired by this peculiar, unique uh, landscape. But by flourishing, what do you mean by that? So obviously, I understand it's like watering a flower; it grows. So it's like you you know the 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 art has definitely grown. It's indisputable. It's like the only reason. I mean, I, I'm not. I don't know much about desert art, really. I know a mutual friend of ours, Suzanne, is about to d deliver a really great documentary around Bombay Beach, and I don't, I can't even remember if it expands into further areas of desert art in general. But it's no, like it's so, all Bombay. So Salvation Mountain up the road, 
you know, is a kind of semi-significant cultural, you know, icon for people to drive to and go and have a look in the desert or whatever. And so, yeah, you know, it's like the town has developed in such a way that it it is definitely like a cultural destination, I would say. Yeah. And and that could evolve. And it could be, and I'm hoping that it can be like a prefigurative space for, it's like a little experiment of like everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Now what? And the, the question is, can you create new structures, new ways of relating to each other, to the past, to, you know, using, you know, when kind of prioritizing creativity and originality as ways to engage and, you know, kind of nurture community and, and community building. Okay, but what hope does that actually inspire? So bef- before we had this, co- before the mics came on, I'm like, said to you how did joe die so joe for anyone who's listening uh was a a a gentleman who who ultimately lived in bombay had the most tragic can you describe joe joe was a, a lovely man who I don't like this dichotomy between locals and artists because now that we've been there a long time you know, a lot of the artists had been there longer than like someone like Joe. There is the kind of socioeconomic distinction between people who are in Bombay and don't have the option of being anywhere else. Yeah. And maybe people who, you know, can come and go more freely, right. have more, you know, opportunities. Uh, that might be a more meaningful and honest distinction than to make between locals and artists, because there are now artists that have been there longer than quote unquote locals. Um But Joe appeared and he happened to be uh, skilled at uh, many, you know, uh, crafts that were very useful to the artists and people who were coming in. He was an electrician and a, and a uh, builder and, and people started hiring him to do work. Yeah. And like everyone who, who you meet in Bombay beach had a very complex uh, uh, history and psychological, you know, state of mind that is uh you know i think you're confronted in bombay beach uh for better or worse with a lot of very of the brutality of existence of a lot of people's lives and i don't think like you said earlier that it's there's a kind of commonality of psychological issues let's say that uh, people are attracted to bombay beach regardless of where they come from in the you know in their socioeconomic background everyone has a little bit of uh things that they're working out i think artists in general uh and joe had had uh uh, aspirations as an artist as well like he said to me many times that he wanted to be not an electrician and not a builder but he wanted to also be an artist and wanted to make things and and he was inspired by what he saw um but you know there was also issues with him you know being uh uh you know, at one point I remember I had to like remove him from the artist chat because he was being very aggressive um, and kind of accusatory and like it just was. So sorry to interrupt, but like the reason I bring up Joe is not to unpack him on a personal level, you know, and I send a lot of love up to him as someone, you know, I spent a lot of time in conversation with and worked with in in all of the skill sets you've just mentioned, right? Other than him as an artist right so just before we started this podcast i was like you know i didn't get the chance to hear how joe died i I was aware he died 
number of weeks ago and you know I was really upset because I've had many nights under the stars with him talking about his past and how he related to it his you know general relationship to addiction and you know various other matters and it's like fucking Joe blew his brains out that's you know essentially what you said to me and it's like when I first arrived with you guys to Bombay and in the end and a certain amount of energy was poured in to the lot that I worked on that created the opera house you know there's 30 people packed in doing all sorts of things to create what was an incredible situation and there was probably 300 people on that opening night I would think and people were crying like you could see the reflection of the light from the stage because I was looking at the audience not watching the show you could see the glistening faces of many many people uh from whatever background they're from and I'm going to call them locals and non-locals because it's just simpler for me to do so. And I totally acknowledge all of the points you just made. And yeah, for sure, opera is something reserved for the rich, right? That's for, and ballet. It's like if a ticket's $100, rich people are watching that. Okay, we've got YouTube now. Okay, whatever. Like, let's not get into all the layers of conversation or, you know, the £10 ticket where maybe one row in the theatre is offered up to fucking, you know, children from a background of non-privilege or whatever but seeing that art does that does you know the conversations I had afterwards were like oh my god I've never seen something like that a woman or a ballerina it's like seeing god or see you know it's like it's Maria is an amazing ballerina does that inspire you to deal with your pain addiction management to opiate drugs seeing that bright light for for half an hour in the desert opposing scale end of that is the uncomfortable subject of like poverty tourism and the decadent and the wealthy you know as they always do, have done throughout history eaten even more fucking food in the castle while the peasants are starving because there's this sort of synergy of perversion that is elating for the people who are doing that right and i'm not saying that's what bombay beach is to me and i'm not saying that is what it is to anyone else but if you want to unpack it on a serious intellectual level with me in this podcast first of all we don't have time to do that i don't we think. have all the time in the world and second of all it's like it's worth trying it is worth trying because you know maybe maybe you know maybe if joe, i don't know joe's exact living circumstances at the end you know, i know the last conversation i had with him was he was like i don't think i can carry on like this and i remember thinking to myself rather than me repeatedly spending a thousand dollars on a flight to get to fucking la to hang out with my arty friends every couple of months should I invest that $10,000 a year into fucking Joe's mental health care or his addiction issues or to buy him a fucking, um, what are those things that make a room cold air conditioner unit and a fucking Wi-Fi so he can watch yeah. gurus all day long to bring him out of his fucking tragedy. 
the, you the, know, that's the tragic irony is that he, it was the other way around. He like was helping other. He was helping us more often than we were helping him. Probably like I know that he saved me many times from you know practical situations. But then the worst, you know, the the thing that stands out the most for me is I had the worst toothache I've ever had in my entire life. Um, I it turns out I needed a root canal. I had this like just. It's 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 astonishing how much a one little tooth can like dominate your entire consciousness and your existence. And I was in Bombay Beach sleeping in the back of this bus and just had taken all the Tylenol and Advil that I had and just nothing was even putting a dent in it. Yeah. And so I put out on the chat, can you you know, does anybody have anything that can help me? here and nobody answered and then at 2 a.m when i literally was just crying you know alone in the worst pain i've ever had and joe wrote me saying did you find something for your tooth and i said no he's like i've got you come over here so i i like got out of bed freezing cold and couldn't find my car key and i like walked like six blocks to this ratty little trailer and joe came out in his bathrobe and he's like hands me two pills and i'm like what is it and he said morphine i was like i'll take whatever it is you know and um and i took these and then the testament to how bad it was is that it didn't even that didn't make it go away it just mm. made it dulled it enough that i was able to kind of eventually fall asleep and then have my root canal the next day but joe fucking saved me like i was like in the worst situation i'd worst pain i've ever felt in my life and he helped me and here we are now he's an another suicide in bombay beach and again there's like many too many but um the point is and we didn't help him but the point is you, as a privileged white male, whether it, we need to even say you're fucking white is besides the point, you went for a root canal the next day. Yeah. Right? How much did that cost? Yeah, $3,000. Right, okay. So, say it was the other way around and that was Joe's fucking tooth, he'd be at the very beginning of an opiate addiction that would ultimately lead to his suicide, right? That's the difference between the rich and poor in this country. Yeah. Right? And so... So, you know, I mean, to me, that's what underscores any kind of fucking conversation we could possibly have. It's like, okay, we can we can have Bombay Beach Biennale. Boom. We're presenting an art fair or, you know, uh, an outsider art fair or a uh, dressing of the set that is appealing for people to come and visit or giving the opportunity for people to create freely like i experience thanks to stefan who's our great mutual friend stefan ashkenazi uh, who's effectively a patron of my art yeah right so he decided to invest financially into me and historically that is what has always happened in the history of art right and i have no issue with our dynamic whatsoever i love our friendship uh, in the end, though, patronage of the arts will always relate to a power dynamic. Yeah. The artist who can't afford to make art and the person who can afford to fund them to make art and who lands out owning the art that's made. The church. You know, whatever. You, know, you could give way better examples than I could right now to, to express that, but I think anyone who's bothering to listen to you would probably doesn't need to 
me to explain further what I've just said. So it's like, so that's one thing area in relation to, you know, you as a, a landowner in Bombay Beach who owns art made by people you've helped make that art. There's an inherent value to your property and how it's increased in value since the process of that relationship. And so that's an arena that you can either look in a very cynical perspective and break down and be brutal and say, fucking towel the Airbnb fucking impresario with all this monumental art made by people he's, you know, celebrated in a in all sorts of wonderful ways that i'm unaware of because you know our engagement's totally different ours is more like socially in la and through stefan like i haven't really met all of the people who've worked with you and for you and around you in bombay and then you know there's, there's always two different ways to look at the same thing cynically yeah negatively or positively right and that's the same applies to every aspect of charity or not right and so and you wouldn't have invited me onto this podcast without being aware of my i'm attracted to uncomfortable subjects yeah you wouldn't bother be talking to me if we weren't going to cover uncomfortable subjects and you know in the end if if where I think using Bombay as a micro conversation for global issues is a good one. Yeah. Because it's like... Speaking of which, you have to still answer my question. Let's come back to Earth and tell me why you put the flip-flops on the wall. No, no, I'm not going to let you change the subject. I'm not changing the subject. I'm bringing us back to the subject. Well, effectively, I knew at the beginning of my engagement with all of you guys that this was a form of kind of colonialist development because that's what happens with artists going into impoverished areas like whether it's berlin whether it's fucking oaxaca in mexico or wherever it is you know i one of my collectors who owns more than 20 of my pieces they own most of the east end and the 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 inherent value that was injected into the property of the east end in like the 80s/90s was by a logic-based decision to freely allowed artists to use former factories as studios for free for a certain period of time then they go oh, i want a coffee so then one of them starts making a coffee then it evolves into a, like a fresh coffee shop and then it evolves to the point within five to ten years where you know people work in finance in the city buy a fucking two-bed flat for a million dollars in an area that wasn't populated by anyone right and that's not going to happen in Bombay, I don't think. Well, it's already happened. Like the Opera House, Steph bought for $5,000. And now those lots with a house, with running water, a two-bedroom house, must be going for sixty, right? At least. So, effectively, between us all, we've gentrified the area to the point where at some, at some point, you know, there'll be like some trustafarian artist from LA who doesn't even need to make a fucking living from art goes, you know, rather than spending $5,000 a month renting a fucking studio in LA, I'll buy a lot in this cool place, Bombay that everyone's now making films about and doing all sorts of shit. I'll buy a fucking lot and I'll stick whatever shit up I want. And 
is you know is iconic you know it's there's a um, it's the perfect instagrammable iconography everything else cool factor of being an artist with and well is that helping underprivileged it's a good question i don't know um i do think there's I don't know when like a friend of mine said that the, that uh, artists are the shock troops of gentrification but in a way I feel like that um can you turn on the screen again make sure it's um to me like blaming the artists for gentrification is um here hold on I'll do this two second break here shall I have a pee pee no I'm not that desperate By the way, I'm not I'm not pressing this on you. Every 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 statement I make, I relate entirely back to myself. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't feel pressed upon. I think this is an important conversation to be having. Like you said, I wouldn't have invited you on here if I didn't think we should be having this conversation. Um, but so 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 blaming the artists for gentrification to me sometimes like smacks of like blaming the host for the parasite um you know like if i think that the um i think the artists i think i think it's the, i think it's the uh the next wave that comes after the artists that are usually the ones who screw things up you know like that are capitalizing on there's now already happening in bombay beach somebody is buying up properties without adding any value to them from local people in order to sell them to outsiders at triple price without bringing any value to the, uh, I think the artists are actually, are bringing value. We are like bringing, uh, if I can say we, without being presumptuous, like I think that uh, artists are bringing life and and creativity. And I, I, I don't think it's possible to overestimate how fucked Bombay Beach was and people would try and sell lots for $500 and it would stay, stay on the market for 10 years nobody wanted it and there were just piles of trash everywhere and there was just like there was it was very sad and it was unique and I think that's what artists like you know were attracted to that uniqueness and there's like something about the desert which is like cultivates creativity and I think that that there's like all of these things but then the, I think that on the backs then once the artists come and make it feel safe for other people to come in and capitalize on that, I think those are the people who should be blamed, not the artists who have like actually done something to make the place more desirable and more more wonderful. Can literally. I can I ask some questions? Yeah, I'm, of I, course. I, I'm so fucking psyched about this conversation because it's like we've known each other for, in some way or fashion for six years. Mm -hmm. Is that about right? Yeah. But we've never really conversed that much, like. You know, when I first arrived in Bombay, you know, it's like uh, we're doing our thing, you're doing your thing, everyone's doing their own thing. We've, we've, you know, and like I spent the first few years like, <laughs> yeah, definitely when I arrived, I had an agenda which was myself, right? It was like I, I'm very controlled in what I deliver and execute in terms of my art. I know what I want my outcome to be. I know what conversation I want to have before I've even touched a paintbrush or a fucking whatever. I knew in terms of like how I wanted to relate to Bombay, 
going back to the question you just asked about the flip-flops and stuff, I was like, I want to set a pin. And when I first found those flip-flops on the beaches of Africa, I was like, they were rubbish. No one wanted them. Same fucking thing when you turned up to Bombay. No one wanted any of that shit. But you picked up the flip-flop like I did in Africa. I decided to start collecting flip-flops. So day one, I see them. I'm going, oh my God, you know, these refugees have been dead and their flip-flops have washed up from the beach. This is so emblematic of how fucked up the world is. And I'm going to make an art show about this shit. So I started collecting flip-flops. I was like, fuck, this is hot. And there were these two guys who had followed me for two hours, me and this two fucking war zone photographers. I would have never been there without them. I'm a spineless, pathetic piece of shit who makes art in my studio. But it so happened some of my art looked a bit African influenced, which was why I was invited out to Africa. I didn't want to fucking go. I was scared to go. Anyway, I was there. It's a very long story. We're not going to do that right now. So day one, I'm picking up flip flops and these two guys had followed us for a couple of hours who ultimately wanted to sell me a can of Coke and a bit of fish where the boat landed on the beach up the road. I said to the mate, guys, guys, I said, would you mind helping me collect these flip-flops? I would like to pay you. And one of them spoke a bit of English. I said, I'm going to give you guys $40 each for two hours' work. Obscene. $20 an hour. I mean, they were so fucking happy. I was so happy. I literally just started my first fair trade company in Africa. So we're spending a couple of hours collecting two bags of fucking flip-flops. And I'm going, I can feel this shit turning into a fucking museum show, man. But I need 20 fucking bags of flip-flops for that shit to look good in the Tate fucking modern. So the guy who spoke a small amount of English had a mobile phone. I was like, dude, I want to come back tomorrow. and want 18 fucking bags of flip-flops. I want 10 people collecting. He's like, fuck yeah. So I go back with my bags of flip-flops, bus, boat, fucking whatever, back to my five-star hotel in Lagos. I'm going, I can feel these fucking art shows. I fucking, I've got a dialogue that the white male can execute a fucking show about his fear of Africa and colonialism. It was boom in my head. That night, the morning I get there, boat, bus, whatever, I meet my guy. and He's like, come to my house for tea. So I go to this hot fucking tea. It's really hot. Drinking this tea thinking, I'm an action person. I just wanted to be on the fucking beach collecting flip-flops with my 10 people. After about 45 minutes of family pictures and all that stuff and show me what he didn't have, basically. I'm like, we're going to the beach. We get there. There's a child and a pregnant woman and a very old lady collecting the flip-flops. There's no 10 people. There's no, you know what I mean? He had fucking delegated this shit down. And, but I, I then realized while well, I'd been drinking tea with him, effectively I was a CEO in Switzerland. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I just wanted my fucking bags of shit. I don't care how it fucking happens. And it becomes a localized issue that has been propagated because of me. So day one, fair trade, day two, CEO of fucking awful organization where I have to make this judgment call of like, am I going to carry on letting them collect so I can have my fucking museum show? Uh Right. And then the people in that town or not town, like few people around realized that I'd given a value to something no one had any value to. 
So from day one to day two, they know that I want it. In the end, I was attacked with sticks and, and blackmailed and had to bribe my way out of there with my shit because effectively, a bit like any other commodity taken out of Africa, I decided it had a value to Western world. Coltan in a mobile phone or whatever the fuck it is. So I'm trying to segue. I don't need to explain that any further, I guess, but segue back to you picking your flip-flop which is now tell me if I'm projecting because I'm I'm going to ask this in questions but also presumption and you recorrect me. I don't know much about you other than the fact that you're the child of an Italian prince. Is that correct? Yeah. I've seen you post in, in pictures of summer where you're in this. It was not a palace. What would you call it? Castle. Okay. And describe the garden. <laughs> The garden is the you know one of the first examples of Italian Renaissance you know geometrical gardens that was made by my great 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 like eleven greats grandmother in like sixteen twenty or something, right? And your father worked and engaged, I imagine, all the people in the history of your family with artisans and artists, yeah, because they were rich, yeah. So. Let's go to like 10 years back in your life from that, where we are now. Do you mind me doing this? this no, is no, not, no. I'm not like trying to break you down as a person. No, no, no. I'm, it, I'm here for it. It's because I, I just want to understand who you and I are sat opposite each other to even have this conversation together, right? Because otherwise we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. So, cut to, you're living in America without a trust fund that previous generations of your family had. Correct. You so happen to be lucky enough to have bought somewhere in Venice, right? Yeah. An asset that you could liquidate once you broke up with whoever you were with who co-owned it. Correct? More or less. And that is the moment or around that period of time you get to pick up the flip-flop in Bombay, i.e. you see an, a place you find interesting. And so what I've learned to respect about you is that I see your brilliance in terms of your, you know, there's like this purity to you that I did not initially feel when we first met, that the more time we spent together I've understood, which is that I think you're a genuinely loving, happy person who doesn't overly analyze like, and you just bounce from one great, exciting moment to another, but also then that's underpinned by like a deep intellect around philosophy and the art and everything else. And all of the ingredients that were afforded to you having come from cross generational wealth. Right. Mm -hmm. And that has given you the opportunity to think in the way that you wouldn't have been able to if you were working on a till in Starbucks and just feeding your opiate addiction. Yeah. Right? So then, for me, my interpretation was that there's an opportunity to do what historically your family has done but at a low level, economic level, entry-wise. Because rather than being in a fucking one-bed flat in Venice with half your money from your former home, mm -hmm. 
you had the brilliance and the forward thinking and the expansive desire for the unknown to drop a pin in Bombay Beach. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. And so rather than your father luxuriating Salvador Dali with beluga caviar and lobsters so that there's no money left for you, you get to spend 200 bucks buying shit from what's that supermarket in america you know what's it called which one the family one walmart yeah you go to walmart and spend 200 bucks and you can feed 10 fucking artists for a week but in principle it's the same concept it's patronage of the arts that's this is my interpretation of what's going on mm -hmm, mm -hmm. amazingly and I don't think you, my view is having spent a lot of time with you or, you know, a certain amount of time with you. And I feel like I can read people relatively well. I don't think you started this as a Machiavellian uh, empire build. I, I've looked at your films. I've listened to podcasts. I've have some limited experience of your intellectual thinking and behavior. And I was like, this is just a guy who, like myself comes from a wealthy family that ran out of money <laughs> that was entertained by the arts and philosophy but actually can't afford to engage with it in the same way those generations did so we're just doing it in this f the poorest fucking town in america and and then while we've started that all together because of the nature of anything will get thought and analyzed and broken down and pulled apart and certain behaviors and events happen you know whether it's a local blowing his brains out because of how desperately depressed and impoverished he is or not now i know a number of people who've died in five-star hotels in fucking la who are multimillionaires, right so you know like you said earlier, the commonality between, I think, the people who found themselves in Bombay, whether rich or poor, or formerly rich families and now poor, or whatever the fuck the combinations are, or trust affairs pretending to be poor, or whatever it is. I think, like you said, there's a, a leveling playing field, which is mental health and, and an emotional response to their life and their family and their past and their ingredients, right? And... I'm happy for you staying in your environment in Joshua Tree right now, you know, in a in a beautiful trailer with this incredible one-lane swimming pool that I've observed on Instagram for a number of years now, and it like looks like some utopic fucking nymph pool. And I'm really happy that you've effectively rebuilt the experience of privilege that was not left to you by whatever addictions and malbehaviors and retardation in relation to wealth previous generations of your family have had you know because now you're back baby <laughs> right and and so now we just have to work out where you and i are on the maslow's hierarchy of need of whether it's gonna whether we're gonna coast at this level where we're like fuck what a relief I can now afford to fly business class to America to visit Tao. 
like previous generations did. Tao's got a fucking beautiful pool that, you know, his father had with, yeah, Topri doesn't live out here like it does in Italy, but it's fucking nice here, dude. And we either sit and coast at this level and luxuriate in our own personal greed and gratifications on whatever levels they are, or, or we work out how we can make a difference for other fucking people if we hadn't have made it back. Yeah. What do you mean if we hadn't have made it back? Well, you and I have made it back. Yeah. My fucking dad sold my bed when I was 13 years old to pay a gas bill. He came from one of the wealthiest families in the whole fucking country. Yeah. Uh, you and I have way more in common than we've had the chance to talk about. Yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to read your background like I can. Yeah. No, it's, 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 you said, you know, you said, just tell the truth there, there, there are within the truth, that elusive thing, there are these multitudes of narratives and each one will like illuminate different, uh, aspects of that truth that can teach us something. And now you've kind of framed it in a way that I had never thought about it. Uh, Susanna has framed it in another way, finding commonality also between, the different people who have ended up in Bombay beach. Um, and you know, her, her, her film also, she, she follows four people that seem to come from completely different backgrounds, but who have all kind of lost touch with their roots and replanted them in this, in this place. And the, the kind of saving power of art as something that can actually uh make make people's worlds more uh tolerable you know in meaningful ways and sonia's son who like spent 25 years in federal prison for bank robbery and he's there making art in bombay beach as he was in prison like drawing and this is his way to connect with with his history with his mother with his uh you know with his mental issues that like you said like earlier that that the difference between having some privilege is that you might have a better odds of surviving the uh the issues that are exacerbated by not having any money especially in this country right where there's just no safety net whatsoever and no uh no uh health care mental or physical provided for people and we're seeing this we're confronted with this like day in and day out in bombay beach i mean i've never known so many people who have died as i have since i engaged with uh this world in bombay beach and it's there's no way to sugarcoat it i mean we've like lost people that we've grown to love deeply Mm. i mean and shig you know there's another person that was blurring the boundary between artist and local and you know brilliant idealistic you know lofty artist and drug addict and you know person who had nowhere else to go and facing the reality of the pandemic which i see these also as like pandemic casualties oh because the way it the way that you know covid didn't kill as many people as we feared in the beginning but it killed people in different ways it killed people by making it impossible for them to travel to see their children to see like you know shig was disconnected from his daughter for two years and couldn't live with that anymore and and then you go to bombay beach and uh in the summer it's literally uninhabitable it's like you know a hundred and 
20 degrees and humid because of the evaporating salton sea and the insects that it brings and it's literally suffocating and if you're right on that border of, of being able to like withstand this existence and you stack on this temp literal temperature and this uncomfortableness of just sheer existence and and if you're lucky enough to have air conditioning not to even be able to go outside that is going to be might be the thing that pushes you over the edge mm. and i had just was talking to a friend the day before joe killed himself and he was asking what Bombay Beach was like right now. And I was explaining how it's uninhabitable. And he said, what about the people who don't have the opportunity to be anywhere else? And I texted, uh, let's just say the suicides aren't surprising. And mm -hmm. the next day, Joe killed himself. Like, um, there's, a, there's a brutality of existence that is, I mean, I wish I, was, I could remember this quote of pascal who said you know like mankind represents the greatest of the universe where angels and and we are you know thinking about the most incredible concepts and we're, we're, we're the the proudest creation that the that as far as we can see that the universe might have and also the worst uh basest creatures that are destroying the environment and mm. each other and and these 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 things coexist and I think, as in the, in the best case, artists, when we're not being self-centered and or insecure or you know driven by the wrong uh, motivators, we're grappling with these contradictions and hopefully shedding light on them in a way that can cause them to be to begin to be dealt with. But a lot of these are issues that are that are too big to to solve obviously let alone but at least we can like kind of like acknowledge engage you know construct these narratives that shed new light on it and by shedding that light hopefully create a space for healing yeah but it's also i mean i agree but it's very difficult and i i, I don't want to like definitely before we came into this room i was like i'm staying with here for a few days unknown like possibly two weeks possibly three minutes after the end of this podcast Do you know what i mean like what i've learned in in my relationship to art making and supposedly veering into political art making was i got to a crossroads where my price point moved up to such a level that only rich people could afford to buy my art but and and with the confidence in my career my politicism became stronger actually that's not true i've i've always hit it hard because but it i got to this crossroads where it was like okay the art world uh does not have freedom of speech in it right because effectively if you get to a certain level of politicism in your art making then then unless it's like palatable and it's uh you know a chinese artist with the thousand pots that represent each person who's kind of whatever something is awful to happen to them and then some rich person can buy one of those pots for ten thousand dollars and put it in their fucking loft and when their friends come around it's it actually no one knows really the pain and depth of what that pot really fucking meant to the artist who make it made it but if if you create political art in the way i did which 
you know, it's probably how I come across in this podcast, where it's like uncomfortable. Let's dive in deeper. Let's reflect in a in an uncomfortable way on a subject. No one wants that shit on their fucking wall. And also, at the same time, you're probably challenging the very mythologies in which that way that person became rich, right? Through corporate greed, you know. So effectively, I kind of uh, self euthanized myself in the art world. Right. And what Bombay Beach brought to me as an opportunity was like uh, no hard, bold, creative, no hard, bold, creative expression. Well, it didn't really do that for me. All the work in the Opera House I'd already presented in different parts of the world. But, you know, to my mind, desert art, which does not rely on being sold for it to perpetuate its existence, is an opportunity for freedom of expression yeah right and so therefore i think the conversation in my mind is there is a responsibility to the people who are helping that work being produced i.e the 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 patrons whoever they might be to look at what they're patronizing in terms of what who should be given the opportunity to have freedom of voice? Should it be... I was going to say something really outrageous that would have upset someone, so I'm not going to... You know, do you want a rich white girl? Or do you want someone who maybe doesn't get 10 grand a month put in their account by their parents making a piece of art? Yeah, definitely the latter. Um... Yeah, and I think that we have to we have to be aware of these patterns that we are living. Like you talked about, you know, reliving our 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 ancestral, you know, dynamics. And then, you know, I was thinking you as a British man. It's a similar story that exists in a microcosm in our families exists with you as a nation, right? I mean, you had all these colonies, and you lose the colonies. And now you can colonialize <laughs> in a small way. <laughs> I know. Like every, right? year, every year I say to myself, I really should announce to Stefan that he should rip all of my shit out of the opera house and get a black female trans artist to do an installation. And then my fucking ego goes, yeah, but um, I've met some really great people through working with all these guys and I wouldn't be here chatting to you now. Yeah. So it's like it's very difficult to bridge that fucking situation. No, but it's it's just it's just true that it's time to like again having this conversation is like a, a way of reminding I think us and acknowledging that there that it's an issue and it needs to be dealt with and I think it's true. I think it's just like um you know there is you can make excuses that the desert is just a very white place you know it's like if you look at even the most underprivileged people here they are more you know it's just it's just the demographic mm -hmm. so is there something unnatural about like like it, you know just uh importing you know a, a more diverse set of artists for better optics you know i mean shig was like there is this kind of like there is a, a, a white underprivileged 
that's that's the culture here and mm. so like in a way like we are we're not just it's not just privileged artists there are a lot of people who who have you know there's even local people there was one guy old guy keith who's like said to me like i've been here since the 50s you know we used to fish but then the fish all died so then in the 60s we started boating so everybody was boating and then then the, then it was too disgusting for boating so then we started doing off-road bikes you know motorbikes and now everyone's making art so i'm making art like and yeah. he turns out to be a brilliant artist but he's just been following the trends of each of each decade of what was happening in bombay beach and now he's like some one of the more prolific artists uh junior you know who started out just uh, helping stefan with like some you know errands now has built this beautiful forest out of dead branches on the shore oh, yeah. um I think it's one of the more striking pieces on the beach there. So I, I you know, I, I want to be wary, you know, I want to both be aware and also wary of like imposing a kind of uh, urban liberal cliche of yeah. like, oh, well, now we need to have, uh, you know, uh, black trans artist because that's the view of like the white liberal college you know uh guilty uh you know spirit of 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 what needs to happen in order to look better in a way that's almost worse like zizek talks about this like when the, sometimes the white guilt takes on a uh a, a insipid kind of superiority like only we're capable of this sort of brutality and therefore like you like you said about your your friend in lagos like there's a there's a kind of implicit superiority to saying like only white people are capable of of the kind of brutality that that uh imperialists have have been capable of in the past there's a kind of uh, there's a there's a bias in there that says like we are more powerful and therefore we are capable of being guilty of this and you're not and i think there's something about that when you start being tokenistic about you know like what artists you pick based on like their their gender and their race and so i think i don't know what the answer is i think that um being being aware and talking about the issues like honestly is the first step for sure being you know uh yeah i i i, I don't think we should be you know doing uh 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 what's the word uh you know filling quotas i don't think that's the answer sure i mean you know like look i, I was talking to a guy called mark steets who's an american statistician uh this is probably like 10 years ago he he was part of you know he bill clinton and he got presidents in based on analysis of stats in fact this conversation was longer than that ago maybe 15 years uh, i don't know well, anyway the point is he he was saying to me uh, and this maybe is not such a pioneering conversation now but 15 years ago it felt pretty big for me which was like he was like well the data we have we can tell when people are going to kill themselves based on their behaviors mm -hmm. right the food they're eating what they're watching on the internet you know the general behavior you know whether their credit card hasn't been used for so much period of time when it used to be we know they're ill or there's something they're depressed or you know whatever the fuck he was talking about and I, anyway that conversation expanded further and you know we were talking about uh eff effectively where we steered to now with trump about to get his second presidency right 
uh, if I can say it so boldly. And it was like, I was like, so, you know, this extremism of, let's talk about it in the white male sense, the redneck sense or whatever. He was like, well, he said, you know, society, he said, uh, you're better at uh, articulating this than I am, but I'm also referencing a conversation a decade and a half ago. But he was like saying, you know, be, uh, uh, black women, African-American women, make the decision that it is better to be a single mother than to have the father in their life because then they're having to look after two people, not one. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the conversation expanded from there on in. Right. And then of course we don't need to talk about the levels of crime and in African American men and women and whatever and all that stuff. And he was, he said 15 years ago, he said, well, he said the same thing now applies to white people who are poor. So it's effectively, they're better off without the appendage of the the father of the child who now doesn't even have that fucking menial job in whatever middle state area he was working in a car factory or whatever as all the productions moved out to China and now cross-generationally the jobs aren't there even for the poor people, which is going to perpetuate even further, you know, when Ubers become driverless and you realize how many people's jobs are drivers in America. The stat he told me blew my fucking mind. And you're like, well, what fucking jobs are people going to be doing as everything's mechanized? And we don't have time to get into AI and chat about all of that shit. But the reason I'm referencing this is, you know, based on that conversation, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm scared to even say it, but it, it, maybe even colors starting to come out of it yeah, as as the extremity of wealth distribution becomes so far and far apart those poor white people are getting closer to the poor black people in terms of underprivileged right i'm and look i'm sure a thousand people are going to pick holes in what i've just said and i don't know because i don't ever think the question is 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 a poor white male now getting close to the same opportunities as a poor black male? The answer is, I'm sure, probably no. But in terms of whether you should patronize a white poor male artist with as much steel as you could possibly buy him for him to make sculpture, I think that's a great thing what you did. I think the opportunities that Shig had, thanks to you nurturing his talent, I know steel's not cheap to buy, I know having it spray painted and everything else. He got the opportunity to be an artist in a way very few people do, thanks to you, right? Well, he also had he also had other like clients, and I don't want to like over. Uh, you know, I, I was part of a of a of a group of people who loved and supported his work. He had a gallery also, and and he 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 was doing quite well as an artist like not on the international scale but locally he was you know respected um you know jeff had worked with him much before i even uh, long before i had even met him um but the point is it didn't stop him blowing his brain that's out. what i was about to say that's what i was about to say right you took the words out of my mouth um so so how do we stop so, it blowing so, your brains so, out? so you know 
like is, maybe is that our is that should that be our number one concern should well, we shift gears in bombay and stop with the art and start with the mental health uh you know health, uh, well for aid. me for me i i probably would have blown my brains out years ago if i hadn't have healed myself through art and so whether that you know i come from a place of privilege let's say and it and it saved my life so and in the end of the day you win some you lose some right but if if to get it back to the core conversation and also right at the beginning of this podcast about what can or can't be done via bombay i think you know the last biennale that i popped into just for a day the way in which you celebrated your girlfriend dulcine in terms of the you two pulling together that biennale right in the middle of a pandemic uh with so many unknowns but the way in which you celebrated her was beautiful for me to witness as an outsider because she'd clearly put an infinite amount of work into helping make that happen alongside you with you and the propensity of the white male if you want to break it down to that is to ignore all of that and it still be about you and your photograph in the guardian paper or world of interiors or whatever the fuck it is i feel like you're becoming the kind of person that the next time someone approaches you or asks requests for you to feature something about you in relation to the biennale Dulcine might be standing next to you and there might be a bunch of quotes of what her perspective is around the Biennale. And to me, that's a mammoth amount of change from six years ago in itself. Yeah, well, hopefully we evolve and we become more humbled by everything that's happening. It's funny people say humbled often when they mean like they'll win an award and they say, I feel so humbled by this. And actually what they mean is like massively ego boosted, not humbled at all. <laughs> But um, I think that, uh, you know, hopefully we're genuinely humbled by this. And, and I do think I'm very much more, more excited by the idea of collective action in, in general and in Bombay Beach specifically. Like this is the difference between me and Stefan. Like Stefan is, and it's funny because he pokes fun of me for being narcissistic and lazy. And um, But when it comes down to it, I do think I... I I'm embracing a more anarchist, more collectivist view of what how this should evolve. Stefan, by nature, is more kind of hierarchical and likes a kind of uh, almost military, uh, everyone knows only what they need to know and everything is coming from the top and he should be aware of everything that's happening. And um, I think it's a nice balance between us in this. But my both politically and dispositionally, I'm more interested in uh, in this turning into a more formalized collective, and that that there is no leadership. That is like, and 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 we've done what we could to kind of decommodify. I think the art, the fact that there's no tickets for sale, that there's no art for sale. But like you pointed out, the one kind of glaring. Uh, counter example of this is the real estate uh which has turned into thanks you know that this kind of monopoly type game 
which we've referenced in an art piece that you had the idea for and David executed beautifully, which is a kind of turning into uh, a uh, one of the lots in the corner that would be Park Place if if Bombay Beach as a square were a monopoly board. We took the lot that would be Park Place and made it into a giant monopoly board piece. I think as a really great statement on the potential gentrification and commodification that's happening but that said i do think that we're doing what we can to not turn this into a commercial enterprise not have corporate sponsors not have anything for sale uh and and have it keep it free and open to the public to come uh encourage participation don't announce when the event is happening except to people who are actually participating in it so we're doing what we can to make it a kind of collective non-commercial uh, endeavor in which art can exist in its pure form yeah i don't agree with anything you've just said i'm sorry because it's like you bring up you bring up stefan right and talk about your different styles of leadership right mm -hmm. uh you're both landowners in bombay right mm -hmm. you're both patrons of the arts right uh i told i have a huge amount of respect for stefan and he injected literally tens of thousands of pounds into the town mm -hmm. in order to facilitate the biennales, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be in control of where your money's being spent. Mm -hmm. you, that, is, that, is not, that is not a leadership control issue. Yeah. That is, no, but I'm just saying that is a man there's a thousand lots there and I'm glad that more people are buying and there's like a more kind of that that's responsibility spread around that we don't know what everybody's doing. Yeah, and that's okay. That's but, a good thing. And, and you know, that's why Stefan didn't do hasn't done the same thing in the last Biennale, you know, but there's still people who are providing food for free like he used to five years ago. Mm. But now because of the nature of the lots have gone up in value, if you buy a lot for $60,000, you can afford to give free tacos out that day. But if 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 you're an artist like me who came in six years ago and bought my own flight to fly over from london right that in itself is inherently the fact that i'm a privileged artist mm -hmm. right because if you're like oh let's get a black trans artist out of whichever fucking town they live in where they don't even feel like they can be themselves and allow them to express themselves in bombay well, you need $10,000 to do that. You've got to fly them over. You've got to have a hotel room for them. You've got to then bring them out to Bombay. You've got to then feed them and look after them, nurture them, market them, look at what you can do to help their career after that event. So actually, I think, you know, m maybe we should look at it in a wider perspective and go, actually, why not sell fucking tickets? I mean, poor people can afford to buy a 20 fucking... You know, people go to the cinema with their three kids and their wife, you know, in low economic brackets, with 10 quid a dollars a ticket or something. So if you go, oh, let's totally blow this up and go, do you know what? We are going to commodify it. We're going to be sponsored by fucking Coca-Cola and Nike and sell tickets. But the only people who are going to be making art are people who couldn't have afforded to fly here or take a fucking Uber from the airport. Yeah. Because someone's got to pay for them to be able to fucking do that. Yeah. And if it's not you, Stefan, or Lily, then it's sponsors and ticket sales. Right. Yeah. Or there's, you know, we've also used, we've done, we've like, you know, for the Shig Memorial, we did a GoFundMe. And there was like, you know, I think maybe when the, if people pay according to their ability to pay, um, that's, that's an interesting model that people can just donate to a collective fund that 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 is uh 
you know, I mean, these are all conversations that we're going to be having both publicly and privately and see how it evolves. You know, it's interesting. There's always like also capitalism kind of builds in this idea that you want to have to keep growing. Stefan was great in undermining that in an interview once. They said, what's your vision for the future? He said, the biology gets smaller and smaller every year until in the end, it's just like me and Tao, like masturbating on the beach together naked with nothing else happening. <laughs> I mean, that's the, f that is, you know, that, 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 that's the point. It's like me going, do I have a chat with Stefan to say, pull my shit out of the opera house? I never want to meet another person who wants to have sex with me because of how great my art is in Bombay. I want another artist to be able to do that from an underprivileged background. And every time Stefan and Tao's lots go up another 10% in value, they should donate that money to underprivileged people in Bombay. Or every time you turn another property into an Airbnb venture in Bombay, there should be a room built on the side of it that a local can live in for free with air conditioning and fucking sky tv i mean this mm. is really uncomfortable isn't it yeah you know because it's in complete contrast to instinctively what feels right because you're like but maybe my guests like to come because there's a bathtub and an open air shower and they don't want someone toothless on crystal meth in the room next door but that's how this whole thing started and that was the appeal but then once you start to get to a point where the rooms are like 150 dollars a night and bring your girlfriend and you're gonna have a nice feather duvet and a fucking outdoor shower do you really want someone on drugs next door screaming right. or about to blow their brains out and that that is ultimately what gentrification does and it's i don't really quite understand how you can unwind it you know, and it, this is also, this has happened a thousand times before. So in a way, you and I shouldn't really be discussing it. We should talk to the actual people who've been in these worlds and go, what's your experience? How, what, how did you engineer, you know, how, okay, you speak to someone who built a whole town just to house the employees working for Apple in whatever part of America they're now moved to for tax reasons. And you should do a podcast with that person and understand what they did with the poor people who pre-existed that area. Yeah. And they'll go, we didn't really give a fuck about them. We just got rid of them. You know, so I don't know whether we're going to come up with an answer right now. No. And like you say, if, if you pepper in 10 black trans artists in the next Biennale, is that just tokenism for you to be able to say in the next Guardian article you do, with five that side and five that side with your arm around them look at us i mean it's it's really i don't know which is why you know on a personal level because we're talking a lot about you and the beyond ali and me and you and uncomfortable areas it's like i think i've given up art honestly like on an autobiographical conversation with you right now like i haven't made a piece of art for two and a half years I couldn't during the pandemic. It didn't make sense to me because the preceding five years before the pandemic, I was questioning why I was doing it anyway, because I was, you know, the reason I became an artist, and I'm going to steer this on to me a bit because I feel like I've been sort of delivering pressure towards you around, you know, your business and who you are and your background in a loving way, by the way, yeah. is... <laughs> I was like, I decided to make art, not just because the people around me were making millions of dollars overnight because of the urban art movement, but it was actually like, I need to sort my head out. 
Otherwise, I don't know how long I can carry on like this. And the arc of learning through being an artist, and each show I've done addressing various issues on a personal level and a global level, how I relate to that and whatever it might be, I then got to the point where I was like, and this was when I was talking about a piece I did about Donald Trump about however many years ago it was before. It was like the first piece of satirical iconography of him that went uh, spread across the internet. This piece I did of him and I showed it in Hong Kong. And because it was like, you know what I was saying earlier about a good artist is a forerunner of whatever, you know, it was a, a moment where I, I made a piece about him knowing that it was the bright moment to make a piece about him before anyone else did. And I was having, and I'll compliment myself in this fact, I was talking about how he was loved and that's how, why he is who he is. Like, why are we who we are? And I was like, let's, I want to unpack why Trump is like he is, how he relates to women, how he relates to poor people, how he relates to african-american people in fucking apartment blocks or whatever the fuck he you know was doing and it was like i was in hong kong standing in front of this row of film cameras talking about trump in ways that you know people have wrote a couple of years ago in new york times about him like how was he loved and i was going it was a seismic moment where i was like what i'm saying about him and his void filling through attention and all that I'm literally doing myself now in front of the cameras, like very shockingly similar to Trump right now. And why have I become someone who needs to be on a podcast talking to you to feel good about myself or not? And it was this, and it literally I was on live television in Uzbekistan talking about Trump. And I was like, fuck me. I'm, I've, I think this is the beginning of where I give up art and attention seeking because my core issues are around wanting to feel loved and safe and part of that process has been about attracting attention like i know how to attract attention i know how to make people like me and those those skill sets are based on developmental need you know why is why do people have particular skill sets? It's based on something that precedes that, right? Where they, you've learned to run really fast because you've got a fucking hunt or whatever it is. And so in the end, I was like, my arc of being an artist was like, actually, I want to get to the point where I don't need attention. And I also realized that the economic restriction I have on myself by the career choice I have is therefore perpetuating my suffering in terms of how I relate in love because I can't effectively finance the kind of woman I would like to be with and have a family with and be in love with and and be happy with and you know I'm beginning to start to think that my ideal scenario is to become a fucking soccer dad and not be a wacky artist in the fucking desert chatting with you at three in the morning What do you say we make this uh, mutually understood as part one and then we record, sit down again tomorrow and do part two? Sure. So that then I can pee. Yeah, I need to pee. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's a good It's a good start. moment. Okay, good.